going to read again tonight from Romans, from chapter 8. So I'm just trying to finish as much of Romans as I can. That's the plan. And we read here from verse 18. Verse 18. And here Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation wakes in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he, for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Kind of a bit jumbled up, but we got there. Let's just pray together. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word that here really touches on some of the most difficult and trying situations of life, of how we can understand when life in our world seems to be so awry, how we can see that you're in control, how we can understand that we're yours and you love us when so often we go through times of hardship and suffering. Father, we pray, just unlock your word to us that we might gain understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open tonight with a story that's straight from the medical experience of the well-known Christian doctor and writer, Dr. James Dobson, and this is what he he says, in a hospital where I was practicing, a little five-year-old boy was dying of lung cancer. His mother loved the Lord Jesus with all her heart, and painful as as it was to watch her little boy suffering, she was right by his bed every day. One night when she had gone home, there began to come sounds out of the room where this little boy was. He was saying, I hear the bells, I hear the bells, they're ringing. He said that throughout the night, but the nurses thought very little of it. Next morning, the mother came, walked into the nurse's station and asked, how's my boy? They said, well, he's hallucinating. He keeps talking about hearing bells. It's probably the medication. The mother's reply was, no, he's not hallucinating, He's not out of his mind. 
I told my boy weeks ago that when the pain got so bad he couldn't breathe, when it got really bad, that he was going to go up to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus, and that he was to look up in the corner of his room towards heaven, and they'd be ringing the bells of heaven. The bells of heaven would be ringing for him. Then that mother went down the hall to her little boy. She picked him up and held him in her arms, and he talked about the bells until they were just an echo. I tell you, the first time I came across that story was 30 years or more ago in a teaching video that was then distributed by the organization headed up at that time by James Dobson, Focus and the Family. Now, it kind of got to me then, and that hasn't changed over the years. But the reason I share that heart-rending story with you is because I believe it illustrates so well the themes that lie at the heart of this passage in Romans that we're focusing on tonight. And that is suffering. That suffering is a characteristic, a more or less dominant characteristic of our life here on earth. But running alongside this, we have hope and glory. The hope of glory that is to come the glory of God, the glory of heaven, the glory that has now broken into our experience as we have faith in Jesus and that one day will be fully known by us when suffering ends, when at His coming or at our life's end, we then see Him face to face. But before we move on to to look at this passage, there are just one or two points just by way of introduction that I want to make clear. First of all, that suffering and glory, in John Stott's words, belong together indissolubly. They did in the experience of Christ. They do in the experience of His people. As verse 17 makes so clear, we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Suffering and glory in the purposes of God are welded together, and they cannot be broken apart. There are, those some strange theologies around today that, that do attempt to do this, that say that if you really have faith in Jesus, that suffering and sickness should play no part in your experience. But let me be clear, that's just dribble. (laughs) It's profoundly unbiblical. It's not what Christ modeled. It's not true to the experience of the apostles or to the experience of the early church or to the experience of Christians and churches today. And it's not, let me be clear, that God makes us suffer and get some strange pleasure out of that. Rather, it's that God takes our suffering that emerges from evil, he takes it and uses it to make us more like Christ. And he uses it to prepare us, to equip us for the glory that is to come. But while suffering and glory are indissoluble, yet they are not comparable. See what it says here, verse 18, it says, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then you've got 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, where it says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But let's be clear then, that whatever we suffer on this earth, real and painful though that suffering may well be, yet when it is held up against the glory and the wonder of what God has for His people in Christ, then our sufferings, though they should not be denied or trivialized in this life, yet in comparison to what God has for us, they become as nothing. And so you see, what we need to continually seek to do is to set our suffering, to put it, to hold it in that kind of context of the glory that is to come. The third thing about suffering and glory that we need, I think, to understand is that this affects, this relates to not only God's children, but also to God's creation. For again and again in the the early section of this passage, God's creation, this world in which we live, is mentioned. So the suffering and glory then that Christians experience, suffering in this life, the hope of the glory that is to come, this, the glory of heaven, with this breaking into our experience now in some limited way in Christ as it does, this experience in some way is reflected in the experience of our world. That's what we're going to explore in a bit more detail tonight as we look first at suffering and glory in creation. We're just going to open this up a bit. And there are three key words here, I believe. The first being frustration. When it says... Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Now this word refers to the past, was subjected, and must be a reference, I believe, to the judgment of God on Adam's sin, on man's sin, on his willful disobedience, his rebellion against God. For part of of the judgment of God on sin was the The ground, the earth, the creation was cursed because of this. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And and, and we see the marks, we see the signs of this curse all around us. We see it in a world where the wonder of creation is so clearly to be seen, and yet also where we see so clearly the signs of its brokenness. That this is not the world that it should be, but yet at the same time, It's not as bad as it could be. For God, in His love and mercy, He holds back the worst of sin's curse. 
For if God withdrew from our world entirely, let me tell you, the result would be chaos, anarchy, ultimate, complete, and utter destruction. But the way that that Paul expresses the impact of our sin on this world is in terms of frustration. And what the, the underlying word that he has translated frustration means is emptiness, futility, purposelessness. It's the same basic word that, that we find in, a, in Ecclesiastes, for example, in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The NIV more accurately, I think, puts it meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And that, in a real way, reflects, doesn't it, how so many people feel about their relationship with, about their interaction with, about their life in our world in this time. That whatever they do, however hard they work, whatever they manage to build and pull together, it all seems in the end to be so empty and futile and meaningless. For so much is burned down, blown down, washed away, or polluted. And what is left, what endures, what we know, don't we, that even that we cannot take with us, that one day we will die. So this world around us can seem meaningless, prone to disaster, passing, transitory, without God, without a life lived in relation to God, without the meaning and purpose that living for God and living in that relationship provides, without the the understanding that life in this world is but preparation for glory to come. Without this, without that knowledge of God, this life can and does seem purposeless to so many. That's the way life is for many people in our world today. The dominant outlook nowadays is that this life is all there is. So life's purpose then, what life is about, is to grab as much of this life as you possibly can. Get as much money as you can. Grab as many possessions as you can. Have as much fun and as many experiences as you can. But you know, at the same time, deep within themselves, people know this sense that there should be more to life than this. That these things in themselves are empty and shallow and passing. And in the face of the reality that death comes to us all, they are meaningless. That's what life in this world means today for many people. It is a sense of ultimate frustration. That life in the final analysis is meaningless, pointless, and futile. And they look to the world around them and they see a finite world where resources are running down, but demand is increasing incessantly. They look and they see an overexploited, increasingly polluted, and abused world, and they see nothing to change that view. It can seem hopeless. It is hopeless. It is from a this-world perspective. But there is hope in God. In God, there is hope. For Paul makes it clear here 
that this state of frustration that we're in, that this is part of God's judgment on our sin, this is God's will for our lives, and we have no right to complain because of this, because we don't deserve anything else or better. Paul makes that clear. But then he goes on to make clear that God in his mercy has provided a way out, that there is hope in God. Again, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Which brings us on to our second key word here, liberation. This is the the substance of our hope, that this creation will be liberated, will be set free from frustration. First, negatively, verse 21, it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So that while now it might seem that the universe is running down, that's what the scientists tell us, And while now, as we look around, all we see is that birth and growth are relentlessly followed by decline and death and decay, with all of this being a symptom of the judgment of God. Yet we know that one day this is going to end. One day that creation is going to be set free. Creation is going to be liberated from this bondage to death and decay. But also positively, It's going to be, as well as that, verse 21, it's going to be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, exactly what this will mean, we cannot say. But as I I hope, I believe I've said to you before, the Bible's emphasis isn't so much on our going to heaven, but the emphasis of the Bible is on there being a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible teaches that one day this world that we live in is going to be renewed and completed and fulfilled. That this world is going to be restored, this creation, to all that God intended it to be. I tell you, you maybe think the world at its best now is a wonderful place, and it is. It really is. But that is nothing in comparison to what one day it will be. It's nothing. One day, all the imperfection and pain. One day, all the suffering will be over. And it will be glory. Just perfect glory. And all of this, as is made clear, is tied in with the children of God. All of this is a result of the forgiveness that God offers to mankind through faith in Christ. As that glory of Christ that becomes ours through faith in Him, is shared and works its way out in creation. And all of this will finally and fully be realized at the end of this present age when Christ comes again, taking His people to be with Himself, restoring this universe, this world that we live in, to all it was intended to be. See what it says in verse 19. It says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, that phrase, the creation waits in eager expectation. The idea, the kind of picture, if you like, behind that is of somebody standing on tiptoe, somebody stretching forward, craning the neck to see. And what that's designed to get across and convey is the yearning, 
of creation, for this age of suffering to end, the yearning of God's people for the new age of glory to finally and fully come in. The third word here that relates to suffering glory in creation, the third word is groaning. Verse 22, we know, Paul says, that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Now, if, as it is, frustration is rooted in the past, if liberation is what is looked forward to and is yet to come in the future, then groaning is creation, our world's here and now present reality. The world is groaning. That's what we see in the brokenness and imperfection of our world. In the famine, the earthquakes, the birth pains of life in this world. Groaning as the result, the repercussions of our sin on our world. But again, notice that these groans are not without hope, that these are not the groans of despair. Verse 22, it says, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. These groans then are set in the context of a suffering and pain, but that leads into, that looks forward to something glorious, as in the coming of a child. But here, it's the coming of the Messiah and of His age of glory. Now, that's something, then, of the way that this relationship between suffering and glory works its way out in creation. But what I want to to move on to look at, and it won't be too long looking at this part, but just a bit more detail, is something that we've touched on throughout this. And that is suffering and glory in Christian experience, in our experience in Christ. And and what we have already seen in creation is paralleled in Christian experience. In fact, our Christian experience is actually the pattern for creation. Now, let me just summarize this for you before we look at one or two aspects of this that, that Paul highlights here. So then, outside of a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, we are lost in sin, in rebellion against God, which brings us under the judgment of God. Sin which brings into our experience, into the experience of this world, suffering and pain. But then through Christ, God's promised one, our Messiah, our Redeemer, there is the promise of the new age of glory. And we long for that, that glory to come. Now, though, at this time, we are now in Christ by faith, but at the same time, we are living here on earth. We live in the in-between times then, during the transitional stage. Because the, the new age has broken into our experience in Christ. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. God's Spirit has now come and lives within us. We taste of something of the glory of God. And yet, though the power of sin and the sense of its dominating power has been broken, yet we still in this world can be influenced by sin. 
And though God's Spirit does live within us, and though we ourselves have been given a new spirit, a new spiritual beginning in Christ that longs for God, yet while we are on this earth, the remnants of the old nature, the old age, of the old sinful us still remains. So we live in the age of sin and pain and suffering, and yet we know that there is glory to come. For we have tasted of it. We know it. And so then, we groan with pain. We groan with longing for the day when God will complete His work in us. For the day when we will be fulfilled and all we are meant to be in Christ. For that day when we will see Him face to face and glory will be all we know. That's my, uh, my summary of suffering and glory in Christian experience. But, but briefly, here are some of the different aspects of this experience that Paul highlights for us here in, Roman 8, in Romans 8. First, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits he talks of. It's those of us who are Christians, what we know of God's Spirit now at work in our life is the first fruit of the Spirit. Now, for the Jew, the first fruit of the harvest was taken at the beginning of the harvest. And that first fruit was seen as the sign and as the pledge that the full harvest would come in the fullness of time by the grace of God. Elsewhere in the Bible, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Paul describes that this gift of the Spirit more in banking terms and in kind of farming, agricultural terms, in the sense that the Spirit, what we know of the Spirit now, is the guarantee, the deposit, the pledge who guarantees that final future payment. What we have received then in Christ, what we have experienced in the Spirit, in this life, is just the beginning of the glory that is to come. Secondly, we groan inwardly. Verse 23. We ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons. Now, it might seem initially strange to link the first fruit of the Spirit with groaning. It might seem strange to us. We might think, well, doesn't the Spirit bring joy and peace and things like that in, into our life? Positive things. Well, yes, of course He does. But that is not all that the Spirit does. There are many other different facets and features of the work of the Spirit. And when we set the work of the Spirit here in the context of the glory that is to come, then our groaning is understandable. For you see, the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us that our salvation is yet to be fully realized. The Holy Spirit reminds us that though God has broken in and power into our lives, yet still we live in a world of suffering and pain and death and decay. And so because of that, we groan. We long for this. And our fallen nature that prevents us at times from behaving as we should, despite the prompting of the Spirit, this too, because of our renewed spiritual sensitive conscience, this makes us groan. We groan as we sin. 
For we long for that fallen nature finally to be destroyed and be no more. We long for our physical body finally to be renewed. And so we groan. We groan. Third, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, of course, we know that we've already been adopted as God's sons and daughters. That's happened. Romans 8, 15 tells us that. And verse 16 assures us, reminds us that the Holy Spirit assures us that we are His children. But again, though this work has been done, what we are looking forward to with longing is that moment when this work will finally and fully be consummated and fully realized. What we are looking forward to in this world is an even deeper and more meaningful, richer father-child relationship with our God, that which is to come. What we are looking forward to is that day when body and spirit will be in the presence of His glory, filled with His glory, and transformed into the likeness of His glory. Fourth, we wait patiently. Verse 25, it says, For if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, I'm sure most of us here tonight, most of us are aware of the distinctive of Christian hope that makes it different from every other hope. That it's not vague, uncertain Christian hope like we maybe say, we hope it will be a good day tomorrow, knowing full well it probably won't. No, Christian hope is sure. Christian hope is certain. Why? Because it's based on the promises of God. So then the God who has saved us for His glory, He will bring us fully into that glory. That is God's promise. And because it's God's promise, we wait for it patiently. That meaning that in the midst of all the suffering in this world, in the midst of all the, the pain and disappointment sometimes that we endure, that meaning that we keep on persevering. We keep on going. We keep on believing because we know that the glory of God in its fullness, will be ours because that is God's promise. But you might think that there's a bit of a contrast, even of a contradiction here, that we're told to wait both eagerly and to wait patiently. That's not the case. In fact, what we have here is a beautiful balance. That is, we are to wait eagerly with keen expectation of what is to come. And yet, we are to wait patiently, steadfastly, with endurance in the face of whatever trials come our way during this waiting period. The trouble is, I think, too many Christians fail to keep this balance. Some are strong on the patience and endurance. They keep on going. They grit their teeth. They keep on but they lack eagerness. They lack eagerness, that expectation of God's glory breaking into the, the here and now. Eagerness for the fullness of that glory to come. And so their patience can, through time, deteriorate away into just a dullness, a deadness, just a keeping on going on that spiritual treadmill. Others, though, are, are full of eagerness, but they lack 
patience. They're so eager for the fullness of God's glory that they try to pretend that what we are experiencing now, what has not yet come, what is not yet available, they try to live as if it's already, in a sense, happened, as if the second coming has happened. And so because of that, as Christians, we should know no more weakness and disease or failure or frailty. They try to pretend that we're living in that time. But it's just not so. It isn't so. Reality shows us it's not so. Now, as we wait for this age of sin and suffering to draw to its close, as we wait for the glory of that day of God's glory to break upon us, we need eager patience, and we need patient eagerness. Just one final encouragement. As we seek as Christians to live in this in-between world, this world of sin, suffering, and pain, and yet in this world where God's glory in Christ has broken in and one day will be fully known. And as at times, we are heartbroken. At the end of ourselves is surely that mother in the story we first read. As we stand at times like that in life, and we have no words, all we can do is groan. We can't bring anything intellectual. We can't understand. We have no words. Well, here we are told that at that point, the Holy Spirit draws alongside us in a special way. And that He identifies with our pain, with the pain of the church, with the pain of this world. He identifies with us. And He takes our groans. He takes them. And in some way, He brings them before the throne of God in prayer. He interprets our groans into words and emotions that the Father hears and understands. So I want to say to you, never forget that when your heart is breaking in this sinful, painful world. Never forget that when you've got nothing left to say, no words to say to God. Never forget that you don't have to say a word. You don't have to say it. Just come to God with your heartache, your tears, your pain. Bring it to God. Be real before God. And the Holy Spirit will lift that up to the Lord. He will lift it up. And it's meaningful and powerful. I just want to finish by saying one thing and making one final thing clear. All that we've said tonight about the glory of the Lord about tasting of His glory now, and about knowing the fullness of His glory in that life to come, all that we've said depends on a relationship with Jesus. Because He is the one. God's perfect Son. The one who died on the cross for our sin. Who died there to rescue us from God's judgment. Who stood in our place to rescue us from sin, suffering, and death. He did it all to make it possible for us by faith in Him to know the glory of God. To know it now and one day know it fully. But we can only know it through Him. So do you want God's glory to break into your life now? Do you want to know the meaning and purpose that comes along with that? 
Do you want to know the hope of the fullness of that glory? Do you want to know the real meaning and the ultimate purpose of life? Then put your trust in Jesus because that's only found in Him. There is no other way to understand this world. There is no other way to have true hope, true meaning, and true purpose. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that, Lord, you're at work in us in this world, in a world of suffering and pain, in a world where we see things that we don't understand, things that break our hearts, things that frighten us. We look forward with uncertainty. We see it hard. We find it hard to see where this world is going. And we find it hard to see any good in the future. But Lord, you have broken into this world. You are in control. And you will one day reveal the fullness of your glory in Jesus Christ. You are the one who is Lord. You are the one who is sovereign. Lord, help us to find hope and meaning through that relationship with you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.